The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. Oh, my goodness. Jo- I am so sorry I'm late. Why I were apologize. You late? Yeah, this is... I, I waited for you too long. I, I beg your pardon. They sent this big stretch Mercedes limo for us, and it got stuck. It wouldn't move for two and a half hours. And I'm thinking, you know, the Germans killed six million Jews. You can't fix a carburetor. Uh, 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 don't, 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 no. <laughs> you know, it's tough. Uh, she's not here to defend herself, although she defended herself strong enough for a long time. There are some people, including the Anti-Defamation League, who said your joke was offensive. How do you respond to that? It's a joke, number one. Number two is about the Holocaust. It's the way I remind people about the Holocaust. I do it through humor. Her defense was nonsense. Hey y'all, it's Aisha Harris and welcome back to Represent. So coming up on this episode, we've got an interview with director and cinematographer Fern Perlstein, whose new documentary, The Last Laugh, explores the long history of Holocaust humor and the tricky art of telling taboo jokes. But first, When We Rise is the latest project from Dustin Lance Black, the Oscar-winning screenwriter behind the biopic Milk. A sweeping four-part miniseries that aired on ABC last week, it aims to retell the history of the fight for LGBTQ rights in America, and specifically California, over the last 40 years. It's a story that hasn't been told on such a grand scale on a major TV network ever before, and I'm sure it'll resonate with viewers on deep emotional levels, particularly due to some strong performances from Michael K. Williams, Guy Pearce, and Mary Louise Parker. But... On an artistic level, does it align with the expectations we now have in an age of quote-unquote peak TV? In his very smart piece for Slate, my colleague, culture intern David Canfield, argued it's not, writing, When We Rise is respectful and reasonably well-executed, but overall it seems content to retreat into artistic mediocrity to function as a lengthy history lesson without much spice or surprise. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you for having me. I... Thought your piece was really interesting, and I've watched the whole, the all eight. Is it? Eight, it's like it's eight hours, eight hours, four nights, eight hours. Yes, and it's very, it's it's sweeping. It's all that stuff. Can you tell me a little bit about your piece and what your expectations were going into watching When We Rise? Sure, uh, I think it's important to start with what ABC was trying to do here. They essentially laid out this week of primetime real estate with heavy marketing for a miniseries on the gay rights movement, which is a huge opportunity. And I think that the involvement of Dustin Lance Black, who, as you mentioned, had won an Oscar for writing Milk and who wrote for Big Love and has done a lot of interesting things, sort of elevated my expectations for what a network miniseries could be. Um, Watching When We Rise was an experience that grew, for me, increasingly disappointing. I think that what he tried to do was create something that was broadly appealing conservative in style, very safe. And what ended up happening was he created something that was not only outdated, but also sort of commercially not viable Mm -hmm. because he tried to create this sort of event that doesn't really fly right now on TV. Right now, among other, you know, high profile limited series, you have Feud Betty and Joan, Big Little Lies, which are more modern in construct, and they're doing a lot better in the ratings. And When We Rise really bombed, for lack of a better word. In terms of the ratings. In terms of the ratings. And um, I think that there's a lot to be said for why. And it doesn't even have that much to do with quality, just with what approach he took and who he was trying to target. Right. I mean, obviously, this was not a miniseries that ABC skimped on. Like, right. it, it, it spans four decades um, it has all of the the music. There's lots of 
big so they obviously spend a lot of t- yes. money on licensing different songs and music the costumes it's very elaborate but it does seem like the other shows you mentioned like HBO's Big Little Lies and um, Feud Bidding Feud, Feud Bidding and Joan which comes out on FX I mean those are cable mm-hmm. uh, networks which makes me wonder like is was this approach this sort of middle of the road mainstream approach because of ABC I guess in in your piece you also talk about well, maybe not, because ABC has been mm-hmm. sort of on the forefront of being way more um, edgy, in edgy. a way, yeah, at yeah, least yeah. edgy for network TV. You have shows like Blackish, How to Get, Get Away with Murder, um, you know, Fresh Off the Boat that yeah. are like approaching t- difficult topics with a very sharp eye. And they're also, I mean, you're, you're talking about, um, you know, political thrillers, family sitcoms, which have been on networks for a long time. And these shows sort of, um, move it forward. I think that the best analog in that case, though, is American Crime, which is also on ABC, and it's an anthology created by John Ridley. It was sort of picked up as something that was not expected to do well. It's this really artistically intense, um, really just dramatically engrossing series that doesn't really attempt to be in any way broadly appealing. Yeah. It is there because it is art. It is there because it is new and fresh. And the second season is probably one of the boldest things I've seen network TV, cable TV film in terms of looking at queer identity, looking at um, consent, tolerance, really big questions and asking them really provocatively, not giving easy answers. And it, if you look at the ratings for When We Rise, they're about a million less mm-hmm. than what American Crime got. And again, that was not even trying to be a hit. And it, it's not considered a hit, but it did better than When We Rise. And I think there's a real lesson there that you can create something that's completely outside the box, completely different for network TV, um, and com- really unsettling in a lot of ways. And audiences can respond to that in a way that they might not have 10 years ago. So before we dive in even deeper into why perhaps Dustin Lance Black decided to do this, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about what happens. I mean, a lot happens. Sure. But the general arc is that it's following three characters that are based on real-life people, Roma Guy, Cleve Jones, and Ken Jones. And most of this, they're all set. It's all set in California yeah. and specifically San Francisco from around 1971, 72 up until 2013. Um, actually, really 2015 because uh, it ends with the... Um, the Defense of Marriage Act being taken right. down and, and gay marriage being considered constitutional in all states. Um, and so each of them has they come from different backgrounds and mm-hmm. it, the, the show really deals with intersectionality. And that was one of the things I found most striking about it, sure. because, you know, you have Cleve Jones, who's white, male, obviously gay, um, and he's a big activist and he's famous for being the the uh, force behind the AIDS quilt from sure. 1992, and then you also have um, Roma, who is a lesbian, but she also in the beginning has trouble like coming out as a lesbian. Mm-hmm. She's a women's rights activist first, yeah, first like that's what she's known for first, and then mm-hmm. she slowly becomes she realizes I am I am gay, and then you have um, Ken Jones, who is a black male and also gay and struggling with that and and struggling with what it means to be black and gay. So you mm-hmm. have all of these different identities merging together. Yes. And their narratives um, occasionally will weave in and out. So that's what, what's happening. There's lots of other side characters. Um, but I thought it was just really fascinating, the intersectionality aspect of it. Yeah, I think that's certainly the best thing about When We Rise is for anyone who, and I mean, I like to think that I know more than perhaps the average viewer of this show about the gay rights movement, but there's a lot in there that I did not know. I learned a lot. I mean, he's going into lesbian separa- lesbian separatist philosophy. Mm-hmm. He's going into really complicated questions about masculinity and race, and he's even looking at infighting in a really interesting way. It kind of reminded me of Ava DuVernay Selma in that sense, mm-hmm. and I think that's really effective. I think that one of the issues is that it, it creates a lot of separation and a lot of sort of sidetracks. And as the story is going forward and characters are sort of on their own, there's there are large periods of time when, you know, Roma's focused on raising her child with her wife or her partner at the time. And um, Cleve is, you know, trying to adopt a baby. And it's not connected in the way that would make for a satisfying, cohesive, tight drama. Yes. I also feel like to some extent they're 
for all of the intersectionality. And I think that that's the I want to say that that's like the biggest lesson, I think, that seems the most uh, potent from the entire uh, film, because you're looking at it from a perspective of now and where we are Mm -hmm. at now. And everyone, a lot of people are saying if we're going to, you know, resist the Trump administration effectively, we we need everyone to come together. Um, And I think part of what makes this movie really interesting or this miniseries very interesting is the fact that, like you said, it does show all of the infighting and does it in a way that doesn't feel like those are the moments when I didn't feel like it was like a history lesson, which I think is what you call it in your piece. Like it felt more just like you were watching these conversations happen in in an organic way and in a way that like I've like... I've heard people talk about, but like, yeah. it, it, it was great to see it dramatized in that way. And I think when you when you talk about people coming together now, or twenty years ago, or forty years ago, or whatever, it's much more effective and believable when you do get to see the infighting and you do get to see the disagreements and um, women not necessarily understanding the black experience or men not understanding what's going on in the women's rights movement, and also looking at how women were able to take the men in, the gay men in in really pivotal moments in the movement and understanding the role that they played. That's really important to understand, not just for the gay rights movement, but for any social movement, to mm-hmm. understand how people come together, how challenging it can be, and how important it is to be able to understand how people of different experiences are coming at an issue. Yeah. So where it, where it seems to get very tame is the way in which it's executed sometimes. And that is, you know, there's a lot of grandstanding, a lot of mm-hmm. moments where a character is, uh, something is happening on screen, but then we get narration explaining exactly what is happening, like yes. the meaning of it all. And do you, I, get, I got the sense that Dustin Lance Black, and he, as you know in your piece, he even said like Trump might even like this. Yeah. Um, which is saying like how, that's incre- how safe this, this show exactly. actually is. Um, I saw a parallel between that and Roma's character and the fact that she, Hmm. in a way, because the infighting and sort of discussion within the movie about whether gay marriage is something worth fighting for, if we're ignoring, Hmm. like, because it's like the idea that gay marriage is representing gay people wanting to be like heterosexual people and conforming to like, and that actually, that's where I saw the Roma connection because Roma is very much like, I don't like at the beginning. She's like, I hate marriage. Like that we shouldn't be giving into these things. I never want to get married. It's the patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. Um, But then in the end, she winds up coming around. And with this movie, it just seems like we need to present like we need to present the gay family as like a normal family just with two men or two women instead of one and the other. And that seemed to me like that was that was the issue. That was what he was trying to get for get at. It really boxes. Um, gay identity into these sort of compact little conservative areas where it's very easy to come at it from a heterosexual perspective and say, I can recognize that. I can sympathize with that. And there's obviously a benefit to that. You're talking about, um, again, the goal here for Dustin Lance Black was to make this for his Southern family. That's what he says. And you can understand why that that's you know, a valuable thing to do. You're looking at people who might not understand and trying to make them understand. But there's also just a danger in making it feel not only safe and um, sort of disappointingly heterocentric, but um, it, it doesn't, there's nothing to distinguish it. It just becomes a really sort of bland, predictable family drama that doesn't necessarily say anything specific or um, powerful about how we got to this point, which is you know a triumphant moment to end on the the victory of the gay gay marriage movement, but it's also um, disappointing in that sense. Yeah, it feels accommodating. It's like mm-hmm. yeah, it's a good way to put it. Like you, you're not going to accept the. And I think there's there's a scene, and we should note that the movie also incorporates lots of um, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, lots of uh, footage. Like mm-hmm. the show incorporates a lot of newsreel footage and even inserts mm-hmm. <laughs> different, like the the characters we're seeing, like the actors, into actual like. Yeah, that <laughs> footage, was it was like Forrest Gump. It's it very like... Forrest Gump and very weird. Yeah. Um, but there's a moment where someone's watching the TV and Obama is talking about how like how he came around to finally accepting mm, yeah. gay marriage. When I think about uh, members of my own staff who are in incredibly committed monogamous relationships, same-sex relationships, 
who are raising kids together. Uh, when I think about uh, those soldiers or airmen or Marines or uh, sailors who are out there fighting on my behalf uh, and yet feel constrained, uh, at a certain point I've just concluded that um, for me personally, it is important for me to go ahead and affirm that uh, I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. And it's mm-hmm. like, wow, okay, so when, you know, the gay people were going around dancing and having lots of sex and getting AIDS, like, that was a problem. But right. now that we see that they're all, like... Just like us. Yeah, it's... it's yeah, so yeah. in a way, that sort of, like, encapsulated to me what this movie was trying to do. But despite all of its flaws, I did feel like I learned a lot, and yeah. I thought it was pretty entertaining and people should check it out it was on abc i'm not sure if they're going to re-air it but it's on abc.com and everyone should check it out and if you have watched it let us know your thoughts so thank you david but before we have you leave we're Mm. going to do our plus or delta segment for the week so really quick what is the one thing that you feel was a positive thing that happened in terms of representation re- recently and what's something that you think we could uh, use a little work on so for our plus i have been watching the showtime series billions hmm. over the last few weeks uh, it's not normally a show that i would think to discuss on this particular <laughs> podcast but they have actually introduced the first genderqueer non he or she pronoun using character in an American primetime series. Asia Kate Dillon, who plays Taylor. Um, the character uses them as a pronoun. And they are sort of immer- getting immersed into the high finance corporate hedge fund world. Uh, it's a pretty ruthless world. And th- this person is extremely um, adept and comes in as an intern, but is quickly taken under the wing of um, the protagonist who's played by Damien Lewis and um, they're extremely just that's an extremely positive step to be taking because it's just far beyond what we've seen in TV let alone on like a a show that you wouldn't think would have be paying much attention to that kind of queer content. Hmm. And what is your delta? My delta? I have to think about a delta for a second. Okay I can do my plus. My plus this week is going to be Get Out and the black people who were at my screening of Get Out the (laughs) second time I went (laughs) this past weekend. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I I was just reminded of how much I love black people and (laughs) the experience of going to see certain movies, certain movies, not all movies, but certain movies with black people who tend to be more vocal in their appreciation for the movie than your average movie theater goer so if you can go see get out with a audience that is predominantly not white so yes that is my my plus what is your delta uh, my delta would have to be the cancellation of a pair of shows eyewitness on usa and doubt on cbs neither was particularly good but both wasn't sur- one of them Catherine Heigl's show. Yes, but that featured the first trans character played by trans actress Laverne Cox, right. and they actually gave her a lot of strong material. She got to do her own cases. Um, again, the show wasn't too good, but it was a reasonably well executed version of uh, sort of CBS procedural with again some representational gains, which was nice. And then Eyewitness was this sort of USA drama. It featured um, a pair of queer characters again. Unfortunately, the show did not do very well in the ratings. And um, I think that the lesson here with When We Rise and these two shows is that it's important to focus on making queer stories that are good and that roll the ball forward a little bit and that don't, um, you know, stay stuck in the past. Yeah, good choice. I have not seen either of those shows, um, although, to be honest, anything with Katherine Heigl at this point, I just... Tend to avoid. (laughs) Um, For my Delta, it's actually like a a flip side of Get Out. It's still Get Out related. Um, And I'm just going to say, read or don't read Armand White's uh, review of Get Out. (laughs) It's, uh, yeah, Armand White is a relatively... Yeah, he's he's been around for he's like pretty well decades. Known. Yeah, he's a well-known film critic. He's a black film critic and a pretty conservative film critic. And his assessment of Get Out is uh, really off. But <laughs> dramatically, we live in times now where we should always be trying not to live in our bubble and see what the other side is saying. So. Sure. 
that's all I'm going to say. Read it. And if you have thoughts, uh, feel free to let us know on our Facebook page. Um, Yeah, that's my Delta. He also has a review of Moonlight, which is, again, read or don't read. Oh, God, I missed that. Mm, Maybe I'll not read. It was already kind of a masochistic exercise. Probably one is enough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, David, for coming on. And again, you all should check out his piece on Slate.com. And we'll link to that on our Slate.com show page. Thanks so much, David. Thank you so much. This is great. The Last Laugh is a new documentary that asks the tricky question. Can the Holocaust ever be funny? Can any tragic event ever be funny? Filmmaker Fern Perlstein assembled an impressive roster of comedian heavyweights, including Mel Brooks, Rob Reiner, and Sarah Silverman, as well as Holocaust survivors, to debate the merits and drawbacks of this very subject. She recently joined us in our Brooklyn studios to discuss making the film, as well as the future of comedy within our current political state. Check it out. Thank you so much, Fern, for joining us in our Brooklyn studios today. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Well, the first question I have to ask is, so as I understand it, The Last Laugh came out of a like big academic paper that a friend of yours first did. Um, so can right. you talk a little bit about how it landed in your hands and then how you envisioned it as a cinematic feature? Good question. Well, the the paper came out of this conversation that he and I had with a survivor in 1990 about Art Spiegelman's Mouse, which had just won the Pulitzer Prize. You know, it was the first graphic novel about um, uh, Art Spiegelman's father who had been through Auschwitz and all the Jews were mice and the, you know, there were different animals for every, you know, for the Nazis, for the you know, polls. Sort of like Animal Farm, like allegory. Yes. Yeah. Kind of, yes. Yeah. It really was about, you know, a collection of jokes and humor that happened during the war, mm-hmm. you know, in the camps, in the ghettos and whatnot. So the first thing I thought was, I know it has to, you know, be it, to make this into the documentary I could see, it had to include post-war humor. Mm. You know, I mean, the fact that the that there was humor in the camps in these darkest of moments, rationalized it, for making it for me. But mm-hmm. and that was enough to you know be a balance to the humor, the post-war humor. Mm-hmm. But it had to have that. But then I struggled with the fact that even though that was more visual than the paper, just having talking heads and interviews wasn't enough. Wasn't filmic enough for me. You right. know, that felt more television than theatrical. So I knew very early on I had to find some sort of observational story or somebody to follow that I could intercut with, which, you know, wasn't easy because it was almost like cutting two different movies together. Yeah. Before we get into the character who you you wind up sort of crafting the narrative around, I want to talk a little bit about like the the idea of the post-war humor and the way in which you balance that, Um, because it's there's a little bit of the discussion within the film about what was happening then at those moments. And I, the footage that was there was like really astounding that you have some footage of within the, the concentration camps at right, that time of people right. performing and like the different songs and the, and, and the comedy there. When you say that having that there kind of justifies the post-war aspect, is that like, is it that because people were able to find humor in those really dark times that afterwards you think the humor can be justified or it it more justified it for me personally yes. that if there were you know there's a woman in the film whose father was a survivor of Auschwitz and he always told her stories about um funny moments in the camps mm-hmm. And his line, and this is one of the things I read early on in my research, was if you were funny before the camps, you were funny in the camps. Mm. And that really struck a nerve with me because I don't know if I'd be that person, you know, that would be funny before. But I'm certainly the person that's attracted to the person that makes the jokes Mm -hmm. in the most uncomfortable situations. So it struck a nerve with me like, wow, that could happen. So just... Knowing that and that knowing that that was sometimes as a release, it was sometimes a little act of rebellion. It was that made it important, you know, that this was a real valid 
thing. Now, it's not a response everybody has. And we see that in the film, yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it is something that happens. And so this whole idea of, of humor being more than just shock value, but being, you know, a healing thing, it just, that's what, that's what, that's what I mean by that's what made it okay for me to make the film. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. even Renee, the, 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 the survivor that we follow, you know, at one point she, you know, she said to me, laughter is a human instinct. Even if it, you were in the camp and something was funny, you would laugh. You know, mm-hmm. you can't always help it. It's just, it's, it's there. You yeah. Know? Well, let's, let's just talk about Renee because she, like we've sort of, discussed briefly before this um she is the character we sort of follow throughout she's weaved in and out within these other talking heads we have these fit more famous faces and she does have a sense of humor about these things um she survived when we see her she's telling she tells a story about going to the doctor while Mangala, yeah, yeah while, while during the war and being the doctor saying you know and then he says to me if you survive this war, he says, you better have your tonsils removed. You have big tonsils. <laughs> so, you know, at that time I was thinking, is he insane? I mean, tomorrow I may die. I'm worried about my tonsils. But when I came back, when I survived and came back and I thought about it, what he said, it was funny. And she, you know, talks about how she still needs to find, like, the joy in life, even with all of the sorrows. But then there's a really great moment midway through where we learn about more details about her story and the fact that her sister was experimented on and died as a re- result of that. So, I mean, how the whole the whole documentary is about, the like, finding humor in the taboo and especially something as um, horrific as the Holocaust. So how did you balance out her story within like what were the things you were trying to yeah. well, you know, portray there? I don't think it's a black and white issue. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can say to somebody, is it OK to laugh? There are so many factors involved. You know, who says it? What is the context? Um, what is the intention you know, uh, how much time is going. There's so many factors. And what I wanted to do with her was, well, for instance, she's watching on YouTube Sarah Silverman do a lot of stuff from her show Jesus is Magic. Yeah. Now, in the, that mm-hmm. that's that was the, the filmed version of it. I saw it years ago in a black box theater on Bleecker Street and in a dark theater with a lot of people my age and... When she was telling those jokes, we were laughing our asses off. It was really funny, Mm -hmm. really funny, daring. I'd never, you know, really, you know, I was already trying to make this movie. So for me, it was like, uh, uh, it was like a gold mine. But um, who's your audience? So I wanted that feeling when I was filming her watching Sarah. I wanted the audience to remember, this is what the joke is about. Is it still funny? Like, I mm-hmm. wanted to mess with people. Right, juxtaposing because, an actual yeah. Holocaust survivor and watching. Yeah, and yeah. for me, who had seen it live and never heard it before and really, you know, recommended it to all my friends, when I watched it, wa- watched her watching it, because I was holding the camera looking at her, I, I thought I was going to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because, like, I don't, I can never... I never know what, how she's going to react. Sometimes she thinks it's funny, and the other time she's like, "That's not funny." And yeah. it's just like, yeah. it's. But just you know, bizarre. she always used to say, "I mean, she's so cute." She'd be like, uh, "You know, it's not funny. I, I don't. I'm not offended, but it's not funny." But you know, a lot of that. Look, she's 92 years old. Mm-hmm. She, you know, there's also a generation gap. You know, with with that type of humor, her daughter thought it was funny. Yeah, but. I think that the where it stops being just a generation gap is when she is offended. Yeah, for sure. One of the other things I found interesting about this is the fact that in terms of like representation, I th- I think that we all think that Jewish people have it pretty well when it comes to film and TV. Like, you know, <laughs> we, if you go as far back as like Dahlberg, all of the big producers of, of like the 30s and the classic Hollywood period up until now, like Jewish people are quote unquote run Hollywood apparently. Um, 
But, you know, this is you you can't ignore the fact that, like, especially even now today, we have all of these this rise in hate crimes against Jewish people in the wake of Trump. Um, synagogues are being attacked. And I'm curious, you, you do choose at some point to kind of step away from the Holocaust jokes and expand into to other taboos, into other taboos, including 9-11, the, slavery, slavery. We have clips of Les- Leslie Jones in there, yeah. that infamous SNL sketch yeah. where she's <laughs> talking about being uh, having being a great... mandingo. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what made you kind of pivot away from that? There is like a self-awareness, I think, within the film I'm sensing. Well, I always wanted to do that. I oh, I didn't want I didn't set out to make a Holocaust movie. Mm-hmm. I wanted to open it up to other taboos. And ironically, for my test audiences, my American test audiences, it wasn't working until I had those jokes in. Hmm. Because it's such a strange phenomenon. If I say to somebody, if somebody said, what's your film about? And I say, well, it's about humor in relation to the Holocaust. They blanch. Anybody will blanch. Anyone. Anyone will make a face. You don't have to be Jewish. If I show them the jokes, 70 years or 75 now, years have gone by. So it's not as shocking as it sounds in a way because, you know, you've either heard the jokes or it's a long time ago or, you know, it, it they don't feel as shocking in a sense because th- there's no relating to um, the event for a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. So what happened was, as soon as I put a 9-11 joke in, it was like, oh, now I get when Mel Brooks talks about making fun of Hitler two years after the war in the Catskills, that was daring. Right. But at the time, it doesn't, what he what he shows you he's doing two years after the war now doesn't feel that dangerous. Yeah, yeah. But it was, you mm-hmm. know, people weren't doing that, mm-hmm. you know, so... The having something they could sink their teeth into and feel the personal taboo helped give context to the rest of the film. Right, and I mean that's that's one of the the running themes that people the the people you interviewed are talking about is the passage of time and what that means. Um, and I mean, even nine eleven though, like I don't know, it still feels like jokes. It it feels like we we've reached a point now where we can make jokes about nine eleven and. Things are well, you know, as... in the film, we, we have that classic bit that um, Chris Rock Chris did Rock. on Saturday Night Live, which yeah. was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Freedom Tower, anywhere you look. Now, they should change the name from the Freedom Tower to the Never Going In There Tower. Because I'm never going in there. There is no circumstance that will ever get me in that building. Are you kidding me? Does this building duck? What? Yeah, it, even jumping a bit further to the, the self-awareness part, what I found fascinating was the way in which both Renee and Sarah Silverman talk about um, people getting offended by Holocaust jokes, even though there are lots of other Holocausts still happening. Exactly. Um, uh, Sarah Silverman's like, but they're just not happening to Jews. Right. Um can you talk a little bit about that? And, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I found Renee and loved her instantly is she's an anti-genocide activist. She right. she is not just about, you know, the Holocaust. I mean, on the eve of her 90th birthday, she went to Rwanda to, to counsel survivors there. That was a really big, important part of the story for me. And even now with the recent Holocaust Remembrance Day when – um, people are upset because they didn't mention the Jews. Well, I'm I'm upset that they didn't mention the 13 million people. I mean, it's or you know 12.5 or whatever the number is. Right. It it isn't just six million Jews. I mean, I think the reason you always go to six million Jews and not you know 13 million Total. people is because that's one you know group. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's an astounding number. And it's easy to to focus in on right. that and not uh, and sort of to some extent ignore like the LGBT folks, the exactly the, the dwarfs, yeah, you know, uh, little people, um, uh, exactly gay people, even kids. Like if you were between a certain age, I mean, it always strikes me 
that we would have 15 more years of survivors if they didn't kill, you know, kids Mm -hmm. and babies. So, um, and not just necessarily Jewish. So that's why it was always important for me to open that up. And I really wanted it to feel more universal. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, I would say that the, that, you know, people, we've had amazing responses. It's been, it's been invited to 70 film festivals. Our reviews have been very good. The only negative thing that you will see in a review sometimes is the fact that it does veer off Mm -hmm. the Holocaust. Yeah. But I would argue that it didn't, there were so many people that it didn't work for until that was there. Mm-hmm. So it's a, you know, I understand it might feel jarring to some people, but but it's the sort of thing that made it universal so that other people, you know, it's not just a Jewish film. Right. And I mean, you have to sort of put it into context, too, with the fact that its main focus is the Holocaust, but you're also delving into just like what makes a joke taboo exactly so i mean in you and know. what are different comedians lines like Susie essman's is you know child molestation this right. one's is such and such yeah yeah the line the line crossing is 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 very fascinating you have a lot of really great talking heads in this film including <laughs> mel brooks who plays a great role in just yes. talking about his humor like how were you able to get this many people involved and you know, comedians often like don't like to talk about comedy. Like yeah. they're just like my jokes should ex- should yes. be themselves, or they don't like talking about being taboo. How did you draw that out of them? Um, anybody who agreed to be in it did not have a problem talking about these topics. Mm-hmm. How I got them is an incredible story. I, I started with an enormous list. At the top of the list were Mel Brooks, Sarah Silverman, and Joan Rivers. They were the three people I felt, I mean, that I couldn't make the film without. Mm-hmm. And I actually, Joan Rivers was one of the first people to say yes, but she was so incredibly busy we could never book her. Mm. We finally did for October 1st, and it was two weeks before she died, two weeks after she died. Right. But um, but I still, I think that we, the, the, the beauty of the way the film ended up being edited was if there was somebody I couldn't get, I could I could make them part of the film anyway. So I was still able to, I think, have uh, Joan Rivers be a big part of the film and have her voice in there. It just isn't like with with an an original interview that I shot. Right. And you, yeah, Joan Rivers is in there and she's making jokes about (laughs) pushing Jews into the ovens. Um, (laughs) But then you also have the the head of the ACLU sort of. The ADL. Or the ADL, sorry, the, Uh the American Defamation League. Um, and he he's his point of view is very interesting. Um, he didn't really seem to find too much humor in anything. Well, let, let's just not, say not anything, but a lot. Well, of let's it. just say, you know, it is it was his job. I mean, self-appointed to yeah. to call attention to what he thought crossed a line. Hmm. So, you know, in fairness to him, that's what he, you know, and and I interviewed him about the, the the jokes that he actually had a problem with. Was you know, you know sometimes it was Joan Rivers, sometimes it was Sasha Baron Cohen, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I mean Joan's her sort of philosophy is you know you talk about it, it's on people's minds, mm. and his philosophy, especially when it came to Sasha Baron Cohen doing Borat singing "Throw the Jew Down the Well," mm. is. You know, Sasha Baron Cohen will say, you know, I, I was exposing the racism in the room or the anti-Semitism in the room. Yeah. But the danger, according to someone like Abe Foxman, is, but what if they're laughing? Like, what if they don't get the joke? Right. What if they're laughing at you? And, you know, I'm sh- it is probably a danger. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about the conversations about this film or the topic, I mean. Yeah, for sure. Even the, you know, you have, I think it was Rob Reiner talking about um, All in the Family and Archie Bunker and how some people thought it exposed him as a bigot and you could laugh at him and then other people may, may have identified with him in a way, um, which I just thought was, I'd never really thought well, about it's, it that that's a, And that's his exact take yeah. on Sasha Baron Cohen. Right. Yeah. You know, oh, it's also it's so tricky. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I guess so. What were I think I have a little bit of an idea of how you feel about comedy as you laid out earlier, but like between when you started the film and when you finished it, how did you change? Like, how did you change or evolve on your thoughts on what, like, whether or not there are some jokes that go too far, or like your just your thought on comedy and yeah. dealing with tragedy? Yeah. Well, you know, I think that. Pretty much everybody has a line, even comedians. Mm. Not Gilbert Gottfried. A couple other people, maybe not either. But most people have something that makes them, you know, um, and I do too. What is your line? Well, you know, I, I, I sort of, <laughs> I, I guess I'm sort of prudish about sex jokes, certain sex jokes. I, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, I don't. I I'm not trying to be judgmental. I just think that there. It's an easy joke, not mm-hmm. an easy joke, a cheap joke. I don't know. I I I don't know. I. But maybe that's just my own. Who knows? Maybe it's just me being prudish. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are there are certain crass jokes. Like there were people that you know, were suggested to me, how about so-and-so, you know, who makes, you know, just taboo sex jokes. I was like, it just felt like it was off topic for me. Mm. I don't know. I I wanted it to be sort of taboo jokes that had a more political edge. Well, sex is pretty political. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess guess it depends what kind. I mean, I'm just talking about... Because I think especially when women make sex jokes... Because women are not supposed to be funny and they're not supposed to, you know, love sex or whatever. I think that in itself can be a political act. Yes. But I guess if you're just But it still about it felt broadly, like it was hard to connect it to this. Right. It does feel different. It yeah. feels very different from the Holocaust or slavery. Or, and yet yeah. there was one. I, I, I don't know who, you know, there was one thing that, that I didn't include and I don't know if I should... Yeah, go for it. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a joke that is a sex joke in the film that I think is hilarious. And it's Jeffrey Ross. And he's Uh, talking about, you know, making love to his girlfriend. And, you know, (laughs) he needs a safe word because, you know, he gets excited too quickly. And so uh, they come up with, well, what about the Holocaust? Great. So the next day they're making love and, you know, it's he's getting, you know, excited and so she starts whispering in his ear oh it's so tragic what happened to those six million jews and he's like "Ah, i didn't want a wikipedia printout right now (laughs) so that was the joke yeah and i thought that was very very funny so see i'm not completely prudish about sex jokes however he had a second punchline that i just didn't have the heart to put in the film and it was then i came in my hand and killed six million more jews Wow. So that's what I mean. That's where I sort of, that's, so that's my line. line. Okay. Interesting. Because <laughs> it sort of was a double whammy, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. it hits you on two mm-hmm. levels. But speaking of line, I, so my film premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, and then it went on to go to Hot Docs, Munich, and Jerusalem, right in a row. And in Munich, it was so fascinating to see the responses there. Mm. Because... um you could feel the tension in the room during the Holocaust jokes, but nobody would laugh. You could feel them holding back. It was a, it was like a visceral thing. But um, they would laugh if one of the survivors made the jokes. I guess it was like permission. That's yeah. fine. But the only other thing that they laughed at that really made me uncomfortable were the jokes about cheap Jews, Oh, like it the was Jack, sort of like the Jack Benny, the Jack bit. Benny, yeah, the Sarah Silverman. You know what? What do Jews hate most about the Holocaust? The, the cost. cost, yeah. And it was sort of like the tension of holding in the jokes. At those moments, the laughter was out of control, mm. and I, I was probably the only Jewish person in the room, and I was really uncomfortable. I was more uncomfortable by that than if they laughed at the Holocaust jokes. Hmm. which is what the film was about. To me, it was very revealing that they were laughing at what they thought about Jewish people. Right. And, and you know, the Holocaust is 
you know, in the past, like it's still here, but it's in the past. Or as we still have these very specific stereotypes about Jews and money and, oh, man, that, yeah. that does sound right. And even if we're talking from a PC standpoint, even if they don't laugh for that reason, they don't even realize that they should not be laughing at that other thing. That's, that feels like <laughs> such a sort of Dave Chappelle moment, you know, like where <laughs> yes. he, like that's the whole reason he left his show was that he like realized he was like, I don't know if they're laughing at like at this or laughing because of like they already feel these things. Right. Um, yeah. That can be so uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, I want to pivot a bit because you know, it's impossible to sort of talk about humor right now without talking about the administration, the current presidential mm. administration. And we are living in a moment now where lots of comedians are struggling with how to deal with this. Um, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, uh, the creators of South Park, they've said straight out, they're like, we're, we're not even going to try to tackle like wow. satire. <laughs> satire wow. is, is dead. They're like, we're not even going to try to like... We're going to hold off because last season they spent going after uh, Trump and Hillary and the whole campaign. And now they're mm-hmm. like, we're going to like back off on this. Wow. What, I mean, where do you do you think comedy is going to get more taboo as this? Like just a guess. It's impossible for you to know. When you say is it going to get more taboo? Is it going to get more uh, um, in there? Is it going to? Yeah. Do you think it's going to get think more it is. in there? I think it is. Mm-hmm. I, to, personally, I wish it got more. Before the election. Yeah, don't we? That all? might have helped us, you know? Yeah. But I, you can see now, it, you know, it, they have amped up their game. You know, they mm-hmm. have, I think, um, yeah, I think they are going to be. I, see, I, I guess I don't necessarily see that kind of political satire as taboo necessarily, although they may hit taboos. But I, I, I think um, it's getting more pointed, mm-hmm. and that's important. I also think it's important not to focus on, you know, the size of his hands or the, you know, the orange. The physical, the very I, easy. I think that that's, yeah. it's easy. It It's a distraction. We don't want it. To, we don't want a distraction. We want the focus. Yeah. So that's what I think. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, the other thing I wonder is uh, one of the things you touch on in the film as well is the Charlie Hebdo attacks. Uh, I think it's Jeffrey. No, I think it's the Larry Charles, maybe the creator of um, Bora or the director of Bora. Yes. Yeah. He talks yeah, about Larry how Charles. like, yeah, he talks about how real taboo comedy is when like you can get thrown in jail or you might lose your life. And exactly. We haven't quite reached that yeah. point yet. But I mean, well, he <laughs> he's already he's he's censoring the press. So yeah, the comedians could be next. You know, uh, yeah, him. yeah. I mean, in the camps, we we interviewed Rudolf Herzog, who's Werner Herzog's son, mm-hmm. who wrote a book called Dead Funny about humor during the Third Reich from the German point of view. It's mm-hmm. totally fascinating, and he talks about at the time, you know, when the Nazi when not the Nazis first came in power, there were a lot of jokes about. Goering and, you know, like his appearance and this and that and how the Nazis sort of the party sort of liked that because Mm it 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 gave them a distraction. It a little bit of a release. It was like a release valve. So they wouldn't uprise in the streets. Right. And so a certain amount of that humor let them continue doing what they were doing because the focus was off of them. Right. We can't let that focus get off of them. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, I feel like there are lessons to be learned. I feel like that should be required reading, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah, we've got a interesting four years ahead of us. Just because it also just, it, it feels so difficult to make fun of because it all just seems like a, a shit, shit and yet, show to begin with. And going back a little, you see how effective Tina Fey was when she was portraying Sarah Palin. Yeah. And I think it made a difference. But that's because she wasn't making fun of her appearance. She was practically just imitating, you know, yeah. not imitating, but she was practically just with her, with Sarah's own words. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. But it was so effective. Mm-hmm. And and it might have changed outcomes. And I and, and that, I feel like, is a good sample, mm-hmm. you know, a good model. My last question for you would be, besides... Well, maybe you don't feel this way about your own film. But besides the film you've worked on now, when is the last time you saw yourself on screen? Like you felt represented? 
Oh, God, that's an interesting question. In any way possible, like whether it's as a woman, as a filmmaker, as a Jewish woman, mm. person. It's so, this is an odd one. But um, here's somebody that was behind the scenes and in the scenes. So I started off as a still photographer, a documentary photographer, and I, I was obsessed with Man Ray's photos. And he, you, you know that famous photo he did of the, of the eyeball, you know, with the eyelashes, you yes, know, that black yes. and white photo. And, you know, that picture was of Lee Miller, who was his model and muse. And they, they just ha- had this, you know, amazing, like reading about them, it was just like this amazing life. And then he taught her photography. They, they discovered solarization together and all these things. And then she went off and became a star photographer. And after, during World War II, she was, instead of being in the pages of Vogue magazine, she was sent by them to photograph the ruins you know, after, when the war ended. And at one point, she found herself in uh, Hitler's home or his bed, you know, and, and, and it had been days since she had showered, whatever, and she, you know, undressed and took a self-portrait of herself taking a bath in his bathtub. Was this when Hitler was still... No, he had, he oh, had okay. probably died, you know, committed suicide a day or two before. Okay. But Got it's it. right while it was happening. And there was something about her story that I, I I don't know I don't know if it's because she, you know it's sort of she was she was sort of meant to be one thing you know she was meant to be the passive muse mm-hmm. and then somehow became found herself and became in the forefront and did it her way and there's something about her story that I, I don't know if I can I certainly, it's not that I can relate to it, but I aspire to it somehow. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you on. For Thank you. It was great to be here. And yeah, the movie is The Last Laugh. I really enjoyed it. it Thank you. Very enlightening and, and just fascinating to watch. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, as always, to listening in on us. And it was a pleasure to have both David and Fern on today to talk about both When We Rise and The Last Laugh. If you have any thoughts or comments on anything we talked about today, you should definitely head over to our Facebook page over at Slate Represent. And we've had some very interesting conversations about Get Out over at our Facebook page as well as on Twitter. And if you haven't listened to our episode from last week on that yet, you should. Only after you've seen the movie first, though. There's lots of spoilers that abound. But yeah, come check us out on all of the social medias. And you could subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcast. And as we always ask you every week, if you haven't yet rated us on iTunes, please, please do. It is incredibly helpful and helps us get the show out to even more listeners. Represent is produced by the lovely and awesome Marilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is Chief Content Officer of Panoply, and the music you are listening to right now is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time.